Welcome back, everybody. Uh, my name is Freddie Fuller, and I'm the product specialist on the RBC European Equity Team. And I'm joined today by two members of our Asian Equity Team, uh, with whom we co-manage our international equity strategies. Uh, Chris Lai uh, and Derek Au, who are who are um, joining us from Toronto and Hong Kong, so we're spanning the globe this morning. Uh, welcome both, and, and and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us, Freddie. I'm Chris Lai. And I'm Derek. Uh, we are portfolio managers on the RBC's Asia Equity Team based out of Hong Kong. So, uh, guys, our teams have, have worked closely together over uh, over many years now, uh, and I thought this might be a, a good time for us to to join on the podcast and, and have a sort of East versus West look at uh, a couple of key um, sustainability topics that link uh, the two regions. Um, Perhaps starting with with decarbonisation, you know, it's a it's a topic uh, that's been prevalent in the West for many years now, and is is really starting to pick up uh, ahead of steam, uh, both at a corporate level and regulatory uh, within Asia too. So, uh, I wondered if if maybe Chris, you could give us a brief look at how you view this transition in your region uh, as it stands today. Sure, Freddie. This was actually something that's been brought up uh, for quite a few times, and we actually did a deeper dive um, looking into this in in our ESG report, which we published a few months ago. Yeah. And, and what we actually found was that Asia Pacific accounted for fifty two percent of global fossil fuel related uh, carbon dioxide CO two emissions as of twenty twenty. So this came as a bit of a surprise for us. I didn't realize that Asia made made up over 50%, over half of, of global CO2 emissions. So yeah. if Asia doesn't really meet emission reduction goals, you actually, you won't see the world kind of meet overall goals. Um, within Asia, I guess the, the two key countries that, that drive this emission would be China and India. China makes up 32% and India is 7% at the moment. And the next country up is is Japan with 3% emissions. Yeah. So... So what we're actually what we're seeing um, as as a kind of a development trend over from 2020 to 2030 is that overall emissions are only growing by five percent, and where the growth in emissions largely is coming from is India, driven largely by economic growth as well as its demographics. Yeah, China um, actually will see a small increase in emissions at a much slower pace compared to India, and that's just reflective of development cycle. The strong growth that we've seen in China since the 1990s has meant that a lot of the emissions uh, uh, has already uh, has already been built in. So overall in Asia, we've seen growth in China as well as India emissions, and that's going to be partially offset by reductions in, in countries such as Japan, South Korea, as well as Australia. Uh, and all this adds up to the overall growth of about 5% um, over the period until 2030. Great. Um, and I guess, you know, taking your point, the key here is is how to balance uh, the necessary growth in total energy demand as, as these economies, you know, you've mentioned are, are continuing to develop with the need to offset the environmental impact. Um, so we, we've often talked on this podcast about the need for absolute emissions to be viewed in uh, the global round, I suppose you could say. So is there a concern? Um, among some parties that there is an over-reliance in some corners on developed market reductions, which have obviously been um, very progressive in recent years, simply being used uh, perhaps as an offset for, for less developed markets. Maybe, Derek, you could, you could talk to that. 
Yes, indeed, Freddie. So as Asian economies continue to develop, we estimate that the demand for energy, which traditionally has been sourced from fossil fuels, that will continue to grow. Yeah. Within Asia, energy production has historically been dominated by thermal power, accounting for just over 70% of the energy source. And that's mainly coming from coal. Mm. The burning of coal has meant that if you look at the most polluted cities globally, many of them are in China and India. Now, governments are responding to this by looking at alternatives. There's been large-scale investments into renewables such as solar, wind, and in certain countries, nuclear. Yeah. Aside from renewable energies, um, a switch from coal to and oil to natural gas will help with emissions. In general, we think that emerging markets cannot solely rely on um, developed markets to be cutting emissions uh, on a global basis. So they realize that if they don't take action, climate change will come faster than expected. So investing in green technologies and low carbon renewable energy sources sooner will make more sense um, than to have to deal with the cost of climate change later. Yeah. In Asia, we are already seeing water shortages and its impact on food production. We are seeing the impact of rising sea levels, which requires significant investments in infrastructure. Actually, Derek, on the point of rising sea levels, you raised a good point. Uh, so Indonesia has its capital currently in Jakarta, and they're actually looking to move to Borneo. And that's because of rising sea levels. Jakarta is a sinking city, and you're looking at one third of the city that could be submerged by 2050. And given kind of the costs of infrastructure and, and how you can't you can't really stop the, the sea level rising, they've actually made plans and they're going ahead with us moving their capital towards Borneo. And they're seeing this uh, for, for two reasons. You know, you have a new centralized planned city where you can actually lower the overall environmental impact, plan the infrastructure better. And this is one of those cities where, where they're aiming to be carbon neutral by the time it's 2045. So this would be a very interesting uh, case study to monitor. It's a very large scale and, and, you know, it's in the works and it's something that we can look into. That's a great point, Chris. Well, great. Thanks both. Um, I think you know, a, a crucial aspect um, and one that you've 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 both hinted at um, within within your comments is is of course demography, um, and it seems particularly pertinent to this topic to highlight how the change in in the absolute emissions that we've talked about is likely to measure up against changes in carbon uh, in in emissions intensity for Asia in particular, given its very different uh, demographic profile to Europe and and indeed much of the developed West. Yes, so in in our region, we're we're still looking at population growth. Asia is growing from about four and a half billion. Uh, this is twenty twenty numbers to about five billion in twenty thirty. the The key growth is actually in two countries. It's it's India and Indonesia, which is offset by some population decline in places such as Japan. So, given India and Japan, they have very young populations, and you're looking at solid GDP growth. Um, the overall emissions for these regions will grow. Uh, but as we mentioned quite a few times, uh, the overall emissions for, for Asia is only going to grow at 5%. So given Indonesia and Indonesia 
in India, sorry, as well as Indonesia, are investing in infrastructure and there's strong demand. They're they're investing in public transport. So these are examples would be electrified public transport, which generate emissions far below that of private vehicles. Yeah. And it's a lot more efficient. So when you're actually looking at trends such as urbanization, it only makes sense to, to invest in public transport. So the, the, the overall population, they're very, very keen, um, and the population as well as the government, they're very keen to invest in public transport, both for reasons of climate change, as well as for economic reasons, as well as population density. So there's action taken from both governments as well as the population demanding that they take uh, they invest in infrastructure to invest uh, to address uh, environmental risks, climate change, as well as uh, urbanization. Great. Well, uh, perhaps um, for the final segment, we we move away from decarbonisation um, and maybe talk about another area and one that that Europe is is particularly having to contend with at the moment, which is how, uh, as a supranational body, do you react to the Inflation Reduction Act that was implemented? by the United States um, last year. Now, the repercussions of this legislation are really just starting to be felt in Europe. So the EU has recently announced its plans for, for the, you know, the proposed Green Industrial Plan. And this with a, you know, a relaxation of state aid rules and, and plans for increased increase funding in, in distinct areas, um, the European Union is, is really making a play, uh, I suppose, to mirror the US's preservation of you know, not only its supply chain security, but also its industrial objectives. So um, how, uh, maybe maybe Derek, how do you think this regulatory shift in these regions might impact Asia more broadly? Uh, and actually, do you think this is going to be a negative trend? Sure, Freddie. So we have seen quite significant investments to broaden the supply chain away from China, with manufacturing investments in North America and Europe. Yeah. Asian companies have um, participated in the reshoring of manufacturing, or um, we call it China plus one, yeah. in areas such as auto manufacturing, semiconductors, and retail products such as textiles and clothing. Within Asia, we have seen new man- manufacturing facilities being built in India, Japan and Indonesia. Having said all of that, China remains an integral part of the manufacturing, um, given existing advantages in supply chain and, in particular, uh, the labor force. Yeah. Aside from export growth, there is strong intra Asia demand given the growth in regional economy. So while there is a shift within Asia for the region as a whole, we continue to forecast significant investments. Chris, maybe we could um, talk on that point a bit more. We, you know, we've talked about uh, potential frictions between regions, so maybe it's a, a good time to look at um, some areas of investment where there are synergies um, uh, and a positive take on it, particularly at a corporate level. Um, you know, as I said at the start, our teams have been working together for many years now, and we're increasingly seeing this crossover in a number of sectors. So, for example, particularly in the metals and mining uh, sector, utilities, and increasingly, you know, the industry that everyone's talking about, which is semiconductors. So, how do you think um, both companies and businesses in in both regions can benefit from one another, and 
you know, how do you think they have a role to play at a multi-regional level? Yes, actually, they, they all have their different strengths. So for example, using semiconductors, like you mentioned, Asia is strong on the production side. So over 70% of global semiconductors are produced in Asia. And Europe has a has an advantage in um, intellectual property in terms of design as well as testing. And a lot of the materials require um, parts from both European as well as Asian suppliers. Yeah. So for products such as semiconductors, this is a secular growth story. It's not cyclical. They need to collaborate on both sides because they have different strengths. For the example of, of semiconductors, one is on production and one is on design as well as testing. So if you look at um, another example, aside from semiconductors, green mobility, which means products such as electrical vehicles, which requires responsible mining of metals and and materials. These are all areas where Asia as well as Europe need to work together um, in order to drive um, the targeted kind of net zero as well as to deliver economic growth as, as well as benefits for, for both these regions. Yeah. So so like you mentioned, actually, periodically, and, and we, we currently are going th- through a phase of frictions um, between you know Europe and Asia, US and, and well as, as Asia, but ultimately, over time, we're going to see these political flare-ups come and go, but ultimately, they need to work together because we have different strengths. Uh, and together, um, they will be able to drive higher economic growth and s- stable economic growth. I agreed. And, and I think sometimes it's easy to forget that you know, political action is, is often temporary and ultimately will be swayed and driven by demands on, on both individual uh, economies and their relationships on Uh, on a global scale. Well, look, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. So thank you very much uh, to both Chris and Derek uh, for joining me. And thank you very much for our listeners uh, for tuning in. Thanks, Freddie. Thank you, Fred. Great to be here.